Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. We'll be talking about the story of the flood this morning and covering uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, Yeah, that is four chapters, and it's me talking, and I'm long-winded, and so just buckle up. It's going to be a ride. Uh, It's it's an incredible story with with a lot of depth. And if you're like me and you uh, grew up Southern Baptist, you're probably more familiar uh, with this story being related to Noah's Ark, which is definitely in the story. But as I was studying this week, and uh, as I was studying this week and and going through the story, the depth uh, of these chapters is immense, and there is so much beauty, uh, there is so much heartbreak, um, and there is so much of God revealing himself to us in, in these pages and in this text. And so, um, this morning, as we go through the text, uh, I, I pray that as we encounter some really uh, deep themes that are going to bring about big and deep questions that we would not gloss over them, that we would not sweep them under the rug, but instead we would lean into them. We serve a big God. Uh, who invites us to understand him more, who invites us to know him, who invites us to lean into these big questions and learn more about this big God. And so I pray as uh, we go through this and I implore you uh, that we don't uh, just gloss over anything. Although we'll be going pretty, we'll be moving pretty quickly, uh, I wanna make sure that we take the time uh, to honor God revealing himself to us through the story. And so uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground. And so I want to get a couple of foundational pieces of the story uh, just on the front end so that uh, we can build this picture together. And so the first foundational piece is that the main character of the story of the flood is God. It's not Noah. It's not the floating zoo. It's not the big boat. But the flood is all about God showing us more about who he is. It's really easy, and and this is uh, something that I do all the time, uh, as we encounter these uh, Bible characters, uh, whether it be Adam and Eve, Noah, Moses, David, et cetera, uh, that we we identify those as the main characters because those are the people that we can kind of identify with, but in reality... Moses, who, who writes Genesis and, and the fir- first five books of the Bible, is writing these books so that the people of God, the nation of Israel, can know more about this God that has chosen them. And so the main character of this whole story is God, and we're learning more about him. And in this, the main overarching theme is that the flood is about God's mercy in his commitment to the goodness of what he made. 
This is the uh, cornerstone or, or the, the, the main foundational piece in which we build this picture together this morning as we uncover the text is that the flood is about God's mercy and his commitment to the goodness of what he made, uh, the goodness of what we saw in Genesis 1 earlier this year as we went through the, uh, the creation story. And so that's the main overarching theme that we're gonna build this picture and at the end of it, as we go through it all, I want us to to see three revelations, three things that God is revealing to us about himself. And these three revelations are, uh, he is revealing knowledge to us about his judgment, his mercy, and his will. And so let's dive in this morning. Um, Last week, Matt did an incredible job uh, bringing forth the story of Cain and Abel and bringing the truth and beauty in that story. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you missed that, to go back and listen to that on, on uh, your podcasting app. Um, but last week, we went through Cain and Abel. Uh, short, long story short, Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, they both bring an offering to God. Abel does so by the direction of God. Cain does so by his own selfish ambition and desires and the way he thinks it needs to be done. So Abel finds favor with the Lord, and Cain doesn't. Cain then leans into his selfishness, into his sinful nature, and actually starts turning from God. And in his selfishness, wanting the glory for himself, he murders his brother Abel. And in that, the Lord invites him to repent. The Lord invites him to turn from his sinfulness again. And Cain actually turns completely away from God. And so we see uh, in, in Genesis 4, the continuation of Cain giving into his sinful desire through his lineage. Basically, it says that Cain, because he has denied God, he's turned away from God, that all of his descendants, every single person in his family that comes from his line will actually turn from God and be an enemy of God. We find a man named Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, and Lamech is talking to his many wives, and he says this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So Lamech, a descendant of Cain, is saying, listen, if Cain was kind of bad, I'm really bad. We see that the murderous Cain is actually, the murderous trait is actually going through his lineage and it's being continued on. This evil, this sinful desire is being continued on by his descendants. But the Lord in his kindness in 425 says this, and Adam knew his wife again. So the Lord in his kindness brings Adam and Eve and it says that Eve bore a son and named him Seth. She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he was, his name is Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the Lord in his kindness, because Abel is no more and Cain has turned from God, the Lord brings another son to Adam and Eve named Seth, and it says that Seth's lineage is a descendants or lineage of righteousness, his descendants turn to God and call upon the name of the Lord. So they are descendants of righteousness and they follow the Lord. And over the next couple verses, the, the world is in this turmoil of the, the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain until we come into the text where we'll kind of stay this morning in Genesis 6, 1 through 7. 
says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. Things have gotten so bad. The the people of earth have gotten so evil and turned away from God so much that he determines he's just gonna wipe the slate clean. He's just gonna destroy everything. And this is, these few verses are where the questions start to kind of creep in in my mind. Could things really be that bad? How evil could these people be? Because we live in a world that I would say evil exists. I would say that there's a large majority of people on earth that might have evil intentions. I would say that even even me and myself has evil intentions that I have to fight against. So how could it be that bad? And the biggest question that came to my mind is how could a loving father How could a good God want to do this? How could God being infinitely good and loving and merciful and gracious want to blot out everything on earth? This is the big question that came to my mind. It's the big question that often makes us wanna just skip over this and get to the animals hopping on the ark. But I want us to lean into this. I want us to ask this question and go back to the scripture, go back to the text and start answering it and seeing God and see what he is revealing to us. And so let's look at what the evil is here that would make God want to do this. Going back to uh, chapter six, verse one and two, or actually verse two, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Going to verse four, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And so what's the big deal that's happening here? Uh, so uh, we see a phrase in there that might be confusing. There's a phrase called the sons of God. What does that mean? So there's two camps of thought. I'm not gonna tell you which one's right because I don't know, but I'm gonna give you the two uh, camps that scholars find themselves in and then I'm just gonna give you the big issue. So one uh, camp of thought is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Uh, In the Bible, Lucifer, Satan, the enemy, uh, was an angel at one time. He decided he wanted to have all of God's glory and steal the worship from him and make it all about himself. So God cast him out of heaven, making him a fallen angel. And the Bible said that he took a third of the angels with him. And so uh, some scholars believe that the sons of God are actually fallen angels. And if they are fallen angels, it's, it means that they're demons. 
And so some believe that these demons actually possessed men to go have unholy unions with women and create what is called the Nephilim. The Nephilim are giants. They're really tall people. They're great men of great renown. They are great warriors. We'll see the Nephilim again in numbers as Israel is trying to get into the promised land. Many believe that Goliath is a Nephilim. And so uh, a lot of scholars believe that these giants come from these demons that have fallen from heaven and are possessing men to have sensual relations with women. Another camp believes that the sons of God were the line of Seth, the righteous ones that called upon the Lord that could not handle their lustful desires over the lineage of Cain. And so you had unequally yoked men lustfully chasing after women, having unholy unions, not serving the same God, falling into evil, and again, creating unholy unions. And so this is what's happening. The big issue was that there was an active work by the enemy. There was an active work by evil to fill the earth with unholy unions in hopes that the enemy could pollute the bloodline of Adam and Eve. You see in, in Genesis uh, 3, as, as God is talking to Adam and Eve after they have eaten from the tree of, as they have sinned from God, God promises, he makes a covenant with Adam and Eve that from their descendants, there will be one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so what the enemy is trying to do here is he's trying to pollute the line of Adam and Eve and break the covenant that God had made with them. And so there is an active work of corruption and the evil that we see here, the evil that we see with Lamech is not just little white lies. It's not just uh, little thoughts that might be bad. It is criminal offenses lifelong sentences, capital punishment, the evil that is at work in the world at this time is completely against the goodness that God had created in Genesis 1. That is where we are, and we see God's response here. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. He says that the wickedness of man was great, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God's response is actually grief and pain over the evil that he is seeing, over the destruction of the goodness that he has created. And so there's some questions that pop up here. What does it mean when it says that my spirit shall not abide in man forever? The thing is, is that we all live in a post-Jesus time. We all live with the knowledge of a King Jesus Messiah who has come to take the sins away from earth. We've all seen that the Holy Spirit is the one that proceeds King Jesus. When Jesus ascends into heaven, a few weeks later, the Holy Spirit comes in like a rush of mighty wind. But here he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. God is saying that my being, my ruach in Hebrew, who I am cannot abide with this evil flesh. And so what does he do? He says that the, the years of man shall be 120. Now God is not just cutting off the limit from 800 years where we see the first couple of chapters of Genesis to 120 
where we might uh, see some people live to nowadays, because uh, living 600 years, especially with my in-laws, would be, uh, it would be difficult sometimes. But God is saying, I'm gonna give these people 120 years. I'm gonna be patient and extend grace and mercy. I can't, I, the grief that I feel cannot physically stay the righteous with the unrighteous. Who I am cannot stay with the evil on this earth, but I will give them 120 years to repent, to turn back to me, to call back on my name. But if not, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Although he's extending grace, he's also letting us know that it cannot fly. He feels so deeply about this that it says the Lord regretted what he had made on the earth. It says that it grieved him to his heart and that he was sorry that he had even made them. Now, did God change his mind? No. Here we see some emotions placed on God by Moses. These are what we call anthropomorphisms. Try to say that five times fast. It's an anthropomorphism, which is what we... We in theology and systematic theology uh, is basically Moses is attributing finite emotions to an infinite God so that we could hopefully understand him a little bit better so that we could hopefully uh, understand what he is feeling. Yes, God feels emotions, but not like us where we are motivated by emotions, where we are driven by emotions. God in his perfection feels emotions with his perfect nature and his will and what he is going to do is not driven by emotion. In verse eight, we see a scene change. It said, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in 6, 11 through 18, we get a greater glimpse of this. It says that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He was not sinless like we know Jesus to be, but instead he was one that followed and was obedient to God and he atoned for his sins and offered up sacrifices for the sins that he had committed. Noah walked with God and he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant or my promise with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
And so God is giving a glimpse of the plan to Noah. We see this as one of the very first parallels of God and what we call in the Old Testament an imperfect Messiah. In the Old Testament, God gives us glimpses of a perfect Messiah that is to come through imperfect men. Because none of them could do what Jesus did, but he gives us small glimpses of what was to come. And so this first parallel is that Noah, or that God gives Noah the plan and calls Noah to obedience. Just as God gives Jesus the plan and calls Jesus to obedience. God, or the father loves the son by revealing the plan and the son loves the father by being obedient to that. And what we see here as he's revealing this plan to Noah is that what God had decreed as good in creation, he has now seen it as evil and will decreate it. This story is an inverse picture of creation. As God takes this formless and void earth or, or universe that we, that we never knew or saw and makes something beautiful and everything that we could see now and calls it good, he has now seen it as evil and will use it to decreate the evil and get rid of the sinful nature of man in it. You see that God created man with an immense capacity and unfortunately, what we're seeing is that man has used that capacity to sin against God and turn away from him. Genesis 7, 6 through 10. Actually, we'll go to 7, 1 first. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Continuing to verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded him. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. It's so, it's so easy to overlook some details here. Remember, we talked about the 120 years that God had said that he was gonna graciously give the people of earth to repent and turn back to him before he went to Noah and told Noah to build this ark. And so in a few uh, sentences, we go from God decreeing something and telling Noah to do something to a fully-fledged boat and pretty soon for waters to start coming. But what we don't see is the countless sacrifices that Noah has made to atone for his sin. We don't see the 120 years of the blood, sweat, and tears that Noah has put into this boat that no one has ever seen before, that no one could even comprehend at the time. We don't see the financial burden. God didn't say, build this ark, and it was there. He didn't just put the gopher wood uh, in a nice, neat little pile for Noah, but instead it was a burden and a weight of obedience on Noah for 120 years. The financial, the physical, the psychological burden, the ridicule that he went through, the faithfulness that Noah had to have to build this boat for 120 years. It's hard for me to be faithful for five minutes. 
And Noah, day after day, went back to work on this boat. He was building rooms for family members that he had yet known even existed. He was building rooms and pens for animals that he had never seen in his life. And then it's hilarious because it says that after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. He literally went on the ark and not a drop of water for a whole week. Could you imagine as a husband, my wife looking at me for a whole week as we're in this boat with some smelly animals? God has called me to be faithful for 120 years and I gotta wait another week? But that's the faithfulness and the obedience that God had called Noah to. In verse 11, it says this, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. It says that Noah and his family were in the ark, that male and female, all of the animals entered. And pay attention to this. It says that the Lord shut him in. Verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and arose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock. Beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in those nostrils, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth for a hundred in 50 days. I want to tread very carefully here because I don't I don't want to miss the fact that this these were human animal lives that were lost because of the corruption of sin. That the felt board that I grew up watching with all of the wonderful animals and the tigers and elephants and monkeys that were on the ark, there were also fingernails that were scratching and clawing to try to get on this boat that had ridiculed Noah for 120 years just to see the wrath and the power of God on display. But what we're seeing here, although it can be sad, is seeing God in his righteousness and his just nature on full display dealing with evil. We're seeing God take care of evil that is already destroying man. We see the flood subside, 8-1. But God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Like I said, we see an inverse picture of the creation story in Genesis 1 here. 
Everything that God created and deemed good, sin corrupted and made evil. And so as God sees evil, he decreates the earth, brings it back to its state that we find in Genesis 1-2, formless and void. And in the first picture of baptism, we see the earth be baptized and the old self die away and God recreate the new creation of the earth with a family that could carry on the line of righteousness and following God, not perfectly, but that God chose to carry on the line. Eight fourteen through 19. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, and God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And this is my favorite part. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. It's a beautiful representation as Noah gets off the ark and immediately builds an altar and he takes the clean animals to offer a sacrifice. Well, it must have been a grueling year on a boat with all of these animals. The flood was not easy on Noah and his family because he was in the boat. I guarantee you it was still scary and not fun for lack of a better term. But what does he do when he steps off of the boat? He realizes that it is God who is his protector, that it is God who has shown grace and mercy to him on this. It is God who has shown grace and mercy on the earth by not allowing evil to fester. And so God makes this covenant with Noah. He says in his heart, and then he tells Noah later on, in 9.8 or 9.9, Behold, I establish my covenant, my promise with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. This Noahic covenant is for all of us. 9.11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That is the covenant and the promise that God makes with Noah. And that covenant extends all the way to us. It extends over every beast, every living being on earth, even to this day. And so if you remember the three revelations that I told you, we'd go over at the beginning. Revelation number one, God reveals to us his judgment of sin and his judgment of righteousness. 
Moses is writing the story so that Israel may know their God and they may know that God will not idly sit by as evil is at work and expanding across the whole earth. God also reveals that when you are righteous, when you are obedient, when you are following God, that he will extend grace and mercy. Not that you were perfect, but if you are being obedient to God, he is going to extend grace and mercy to you. The flood and the ark are the two pictures of God's judgment on evil and on righteousness. Again, we live in a post-Jesus world, and so it's so difficult for us to see the little nitpicky things here because we live in a world where Jesus has been the ultimate sacrifice, where Jesus has taken on the full wrath of God, where Jesus has paid the price for our sins and given us access to God. But here God is letting Israel and everyone from, from that time forth know that he will not allow evil to fester. And in his time and in his will, he will bring judgment on the enemy. Revelation number two that God reveals to us is that he reveals to us his great mercy towards us in the Noahic covenant and the early picture of the Messiah. This covenant of I will no longer blot out the earth, that I will no longer bring the floodwaters. This covenant that we, uh, we see the rainbow and we're reminded of is not just a covenant that we don't have to worry about the entire earth flooding, but it's actually a promise that God is going to make another way. We see here in Genesis 9 that God is going to make another way outside of just blotting out evil completely. And that other way is Jesus. God is making a covenant, a promise to his people that he is going to fulfill in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the story of Jesus. And we see that with a future hope of glory, he will fulfill once again as King Jesus will come back for us in a second coming. That it says in Revelation 22 that Jesus will make a new earth, a new heaven where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. God is reminding us through his covenant that he is making a new way for his wrath and judgment to come upon evil and sin. And Revelation number three is that God reveals to us that there is absolutely nothing that can stop his will. God's will from the beginning is that God and man would dwell together in the garden of Eden. The serpent tried to deter that, but through, the, through King Jesus, we have an open access to God. There's no longer a tabernacle or an ark. And through the Trinity and through what is gonna happen in the second coming, coming we will be back together with God in full communion with him. That will cannot be stopped even though the enemy is trying to fight it tooth and nail every single day. We even see a beautiful picture in this story as God shuts Noah into the ark. 
God shuts the door and not hell or high water could separate Noah and his family and those animals from God's protection, pun intended. We see Revelation 3, 7, that God reveals to, uh, to John. He says that for I, whatever door I will open, no one can shut, and whatever door I shut, no one can open. Nothing can stop the will of God. The goodness of God is declared through his judgment, his mercy, and his will in this text. In what might seem like a downer story, in what might seem like really sad, the goodness of God is fully on display here. And I have one question for you. I want you to take this question with you. I want you to meditate on it this week. How will you respond to these revelations? How will you respond to what God has revealed about himself in this text? How will you respond to knowing that the judgment of God against evil? How will you respond to knowing about the judgment of God towards righteousness? Just as the earth was beginning to be filled with evil, God raises Noah an imperfect representation of the coming Messiah. God shows us the first sign of baptism as he destroys the old creation and then recreates a new one. The thing about this story is even though there was a, there was a timeline on it, God said 120 years, the, the text actually says that no one really suspected that rain and flood was actually gonna come. The people were surprised when the rain came. How does that relate to us now where Jesus says that no one will know the time or the hour when I return? So Christ follower, why have you lost your urgency for the gospel? Are you building an ark for yourself and your family or are you building an ark for all of God's creation? The story goes so much further than just a floating zoo it is God calling out to you and to myself that he is working against evil so that we may have a relationship with him and no longer allow for our capacity, to sin, our capacity of sin to separate us from a holy God and giving us a beautiful opportunity to share the good news with everyone around us that they do not have to suffer from their sin, that they do not have to face the wrath of God for their sin. That God has raised a perfect Messiah and that you and I are the carriers of this good news and this gospel. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Thank, thankful for the stories in Genesis that they aren't just stories, but is the revelation of your heart, of your will, of who you are for us. And that through the glimpses of the gospel, all the way in the beginning, we see your glorious nature on display. 
So God, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but instead we would also be doers. May we take these revelations and would we respond accordingly to your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.